This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Might be a little bit too early in the morning to ask this question, but how often do you lie? Don't say never because you know you do. I mean, maybe it's not a big one. Maybe it's just a little one, but there are all sorts of levels of dishonesty. Maybe some are just an exaggeration, but still it's a bit of a lie, isn't it? Maybe you're doing it so you don't hurt someone's feelings, but still it's a bit of a lie, isn't it? So why do we do it? Well, someone has actually done some research into this, which we're going to talk about right now. Dr. Christian Miller is with us, A.C. Reed, Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Well, I love the idea that we're researching Lyme because do people actually admit to this? Uh, apparently they do. I, would, I was surprised initially myself too, but if you put, take them into the lab and you ask them these questions, people are rather forth, forthcoming about it, maybe because there's not as much at stake uh, as there would be in other social contexts. Okay, so how did you break this down? Like, why do we lie? Uh, well, there's, there's how much we lie, and then there's why we do it. Uh, so the reasons vary widely. Um, sometimes it's to benefit ourselves. Maybe, in fact, often it's to benefit ourselves, to get ahead somehow, to protect us from punishment of various kinds. But that's not the only reason. Sometimes we also lie altruistically. So to help other people out because we don't want to hurt their feelings, or we even in very dramatic cases because we want to protect innocent lives. So the reasons can range quite broadly. Okay, but that sounds like we are ascribing the best possible motives to our lying. Uh, that's, yeah, so, and we could be lying about <laughs> right. that too. We yeah, could be exactly, self-deceived. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, let's be honest here, which we should. Um, I think most of the time, they're, they're pretty crummy reasons. Um, they're things like, uh, I want to make a good impression upon someone else. Um, or uh, I didn't do my homework, but I don't want to get in trouble with my teacher. Uh, so it's often self-centered to protect us or benefit us in some way. So I think that's, frankly, the more common reason. Let's talk about the role of the audience here. Like how much of how, how influential is that? Is that what we are saying depends on the people in front of us and, and what we're trying, what impression we're trying to make? Oh, it's, it's huge. I mean, there is the, the phenomenon of lying to ourselves. So there's self-deception. So you don't always have to have an audience unless you're the audience. But most of the time, lying happens in front of other people. And it depends upon what's at stake in the situation. So it could be, for example, in a very uh, influential case in, in the history of civilization, uh, people lied in order to protect Jewish families during World War II. There was an audience where the Nazis were looking for the Jewish families and uh, the lies were told, again, for selfless reasons, for good reasons, where so much was at stake. Other times, the audience might be, say, your significant other, and they're asking you, you know, do you like this dress? Do you like this tie? Do you like this food? Uh, much less is at stake. And yet we lie anyway. Why? Well, maybe we don't want to hurt that other person's feelings. So audience is key for sure. Okay. So did we find that, like, 
what about lying in personal relationships? Are we more likely to lie to people we don't know as well or people we know better? Yeah. So I think intuitively you would have probably said we tend to lie more to strangers because, you know, we're not going to see them again. Who cares? Much less is at stake. And that's true for trivial lies, kind of everyday lies, minor things. But the research actually found the opposite was the case for serious lies. So things like, um, have you had an affair or not? Um, Financial impropriety. There, it's much more likely people will lie to their significant others and their friends than they will to strangers. So you get an interesting split between everyday lies or more trivial lies and serious lies uh, go in the other direction. Oh, so the big stuff. So was there any correlations if you're more likely to do the trivial stuff that you're more likely to do the big stuff, like anything like that? Uh, I think once you open the door to lying and it becomes more prevalent, it's kind of... uh, uh, exacerbates or kind of compounds itself. Um, and uh, I think it's also true that in society, as we um, hold up role models or we celebrate people who lie, that can have a snowball effect. So I think that that, that definitely one lie can lead to another, can lead to another. And also what in society is being celebrated can have a compounding effect too. Well, I do wonder that. So what about the role of social media and all of this? Because there's an argument to be made here, Dr. Miller, that we're lying on social media all the time. Now, this is, I think, maybe one of the most fascinating things about this research. I would have thought that to be the case, too. And then I dove into the empirical data, and it's really a mixed bag. So it really seems to depend upon whether we attach our name to something on social media or not. So if, if you know, naturally, if we're doing something anonymous, like we're, we're on Twitter and anonymous accounts, or we're posting something on a chat room anonymously, then it's kind of anything goes, and you can expect a lot of lying. However, if it's something else like LinkedIn or if it's Facebook or just more traditional things like email or texting, the rates are surprisingly low. Um, in one study, looking at the, the number of, of uh, social media posts over a week, the percentage of lying social media posts was less than 10%. Uh, so why is that? I mean, one reason yeah. is that, well, you're, you're attaching your name to it. So it's not anonymous. You're kind of responsible for it. Uh, you can be held accountable for it later. If you put something up on LinkedIn that, that's you know, a fake degree or a fake accomplishment, um, that might come back to bite you later on. And also the, there's, there's the matter of leaving a paper trail. Um, so this stuff is now recorded and it can not just come back to haunt you in the moment, it can come back to haunt you even years later. So uh, there's an interesting asymmetry here on social media. Anonymous, yeah, probably a lot of lying, but you attach your name to it. Uh, it's pretty reliable, more than I thought it would be. Okay, but you know what that tells me, though? That kind of suggests that people know what they're doing. Like, they know when they're lying and when they're not lying. Like, it's almost like it's a co- there is a conscious decision people make. Yes, I think uh, we're quite clever about this, and we give it some thoughts, and we're aware of the kind of costs and benefits, and maybe we don't consciously go through a systematic cost-benefit analysis, but implicitly or subconsciously we right. do. And so we kind of weigh up, is it worth it for whatever I can accomplish by lying? Is it worth it in this instance? Or if I get caught lying, would the punishment be worse? So I think that happens all the time throughout life. Somewhere in our brain, we make that transaction. I'm suggesting yes. Um, Again, it may not be conscious, um, but I think it's just part of life in general. We, We constantly, look, things are happening fast. We may not have a time to slow down and consciously go step by step, adding the costs and benefits, but subconsciously, we're quite good at this, uh, thinking about what is going to be in our interests. Um, 
And so I think that does happen. So is there such a thing as a truly honest person? Oh, well, I think if you want perfect honesty, here's what you need. You need someone who's not going to tell unjustified lies, but also is not going to do a bunch of other things. They're not going to cheat. They're not going to steal. They're not going to BS. Um, they're not going to be a hypocrite. Uh, there's a whole gamut of stuff that's involved in being perfectly honest. So the, the bar is set very high. And I don't think that's really attainable for most of us. What is attainable is that honesty can come in degrees. So we can at least make gradual incremental progress in becoming more honest. And we can say, you know, Abraham Lincoln was more honest than I was, and I'm more honest than, you know, take your normal politician. Um, so that, that's true. Um, <laughs> what is a normal uh, politician? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just made that up. Um, but, uh, uh, but I think so you can get degrees of honesty, but perfect honesty, that's probably uh, not for this world. Oh, so fascinating. Dr. Miller, thank you for your time on that. Thanks very much for having me on your show. That's Dr. Christian Miller, A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. They've been doing a lot of research into the issue of lying. So don't I don't believe anybody when they say, oh, I don't lie. Well, you do. Somehow in some category of lying, because nobody is 100% honest all the time, not to yourself, not to other people. I mean, every, you know, somebody says to you, Hey, how do I look in this? Do you 100% tell them? Say, no, that does not look good on you at all. Like, come on. There's all sorts of levels of lying here that we're talking about, right? This is Mornings with Simi. I'll be honest right now and tell you that I think that our Scott Chance is the kind of guy who is a pretty stand-up guy and maybe doesn't lie like 90% of the time. What do you say, Scott? Uh, I, I promise I'm telling you the truth, Simi, when I say this. I am a phenomenally good liar. What? I know. I know. It's you like, should well, see the look on his face right now. It's like he doesn't want to. It's almost like you're proud of it, Scott. Well, it's the thing. It's like you. this is the thing about lying is you have to know how and when to use it. And once you've mastered that, it becomes like uh, like one of those mild superpowers. You know, it's it's a. I think that uh, that there are ways to like help you get that. You know, you, it helps Do you. you. See this it can help look you. on my face right now. Yeah, you're shocked. You're shocked. I am genuinely shocked. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. That you are saying this. But, Simi, here's the thing. I would never lie to you, and I would never lie to, like, uh, anyone here on our team. How do I know that now, though? Because I'm telling you. Because I'm telling you. But you're also a phenomenal liar. You just told us that. I know. I know. You have made everything that you say negatable. Well, but the thing is, Simi, also, if I actually intended to deceive you, why would I 
tell you that I'm good at lying, right? It's way too early in the morning for you to mess with my head like this, quite honestly. (laughs) But here's the thing. There are circumstances, like, uh, like you were talking about before, where... Telling a little lie can be helpful or uh, sort of make things go a little bit smoother or, you know, like I, I frame it this way is the intention to deceive somebody. And often it's not, you know, it's just trying to uh, avoid having like drawn out conversations or it's in the interest of time and stuff. And I think the secret to a good lie is uh, self-deprecation. Right. Huh. If you make yourself look bad, people are more inclined to believe your lie. You should probably get into politics. I feel if that's your take on it, then maybe that might be the place for you. Okay. I'm I'm not, I'm not opposed to that idea. I'm glad to see that you're that honest and open about your ability to lie. That's, I guess, good. Totally. And I don't like, like you were saying earlier as well, everybody does it. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. And I think it's about not being abusive with it and not, being deceptive. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to like deceive anyone into thinking something about me that's well, not now true. It sounds like you're lying to yourself. So that's great. <laughs> so if anybody wants to weigh in, they can send me at cknw.com. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just not as I don't think uh, as open as you are about that. I anyway, this is, feels like a very deep topic For sure, right now. Cuz I also did want to make sure that we talked about some other stuff this morning because did you see this housing announcement from yesterday? Yeah, it's big, hey. It is, and that's why I feel like we do have to talk about this. Yeah, I think it's I I think it's good. I think it's a great thing, right? I would like You're, to see how this shapes up. Okay. I it, it's certainly exactly what the government said they were going to yeah. do, that they were going to, the, the problem with the holdup of so many developments and changes is at the municipal level with public hearings, where the people who have a vested interest against something are far more likely to show up and talk about it yeah. than the people who don't have a problem with it. Right. And so inherently things get stopped in the municipal process because of people who are angry about something versus something who people who don't care about something. Yeah. Or they care. And like they, maybe they don't have the resources or the time to go to these hearings because they have to work because their housing is so expensive. It's, this is just another version of, and I hate to use this term nimbyism. Uh, I knew you were going to say that. So Uh, this takes that option out that if the proposal or the proposed development is within the parameters of what's allowed in the zoning and the city plan. Plan, no need for a public hearing. I, and I totally agree with that. If it's my property and the city has decided that like this is this is what's allowed, great. And, and then you na- shouldn't have to ask your neighbors yes, for permission. On I that. agree with that. Right? Is that not capitalism? Is that not the system that we have where it's mine? I can do whatever I want with it. Sure. Okay. But what about, well, you argue that about Airbnbs too. The short term, right? That's the exact same argument that many uh, property owners make with Airbnbs. Yeah, Scott, you're I the guess. opposite of that. I don't know no, about now that. now he's equivocating. Like, anyway, yeah, okay, fine. it is a huge <laughs> decision. And so what the province is saying is that anywhere that is single family zoning, that can now have multiplexes built on it. Right. And I think that that is a, uh, look, we need something, right? We, we have to do something. Sitting here and twiddling our thumbs and talking about options isn't going to fix the housing problem. I think we need a full court press. I think we need to have multiple uh, things happen. And this is one of the things that I think is going to ha- hopefully help. Uh, and if people want to have Airbnb, this will help those people as well. You can build more places, have income suites. You just can't rent them long or short term, like long term rentals instead. Uh, it was interesting. There was a post on Reddit. I'm a big Reddit user. And this is totally just anecdotal. But a Reddit user just sort of since the Airbnb crackdown over the last couple of weeks kind of commented, has anyone else noticed that there's a lot more rental properties starting to pop up on Craigslist and Marketplace? Have you noticed that? I mean, I haven't been looking for rentals, but 
anytime I scroll through, I feel like I'm seeing more rental properties on the ones that just automatically get huh. fed through to my, to my, you know, my feed, my algorithm. I so. wonder if that's the case. Does anybody else notice that? I would love to hear from them on that. Simi at cknw.com. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. Learned so much about Scott this morning, didn't we? This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun this morning. Hi, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. So I hear John Horgan has a new job. Yeah, it's been a year, you know, since David Eby took over, almost as, almost a year. And Horgan, from the beginning, advertised himself as being available. He said he was entirely retiring just from the Premier's office. It's taken a while. I think for a while he was kind of hoping for a federal government appointment. That faded. He took a job on the board of a mining company, but that... Uh, position, I think, sort of disappeared in the reorganization of the company, nothing that Horgan had to do with. So the Prime Minister this week, Justin Trudeau, has appointed John Horgan Canada's ambassador to Germany. He's going to Berlin. Uh, Horgan is a tremendous history buff. That will be, yes. whatever else you think, that will be a great assignment for John Horgan and his wife, Ellie. Uh, they've earned a good job from the federal government, I would say, and wish him wish him well. Hey, I think he was kind of hoping for Ireland, given his Irish history, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, this is a good job. Uh, I think he's, we're trying to figure it out yesterday how many B.C. premiers on leaving office have managed to land one of these jobs overseas, and Gordon Campbell's the only one I can think of. Uh, Stephen Harper sent him to the U.K., so, uh, but, yeah, no, it's a, it's a big deal, and... Uh, as I say, congratulations. Uh, look for I sent him a note yesterday saying you're a history buff. This is going to be a great job for you. I haven't heard back, but uh, I expect he was collecting accolades and congratulations no yesterday. Big job, big job. Uh, okay, so I know we'll have more to say about that, but let's talk about the big housing announcement yesterday because I was at the dentist in the dentist chair, uh, Vaughn, and they have a TV in the ceiling, and they were watch. I was watching BC One, and I was, was reading the closed captioning of this as it was happening, and I thought, whoa! Even at that point, where I was and what I was doing, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. It will transform most of the residential neighborhoods in British Columbia because still many, many residential neighborhoods are zoned for single family residences only. And this legislation will outlaw that zoning. So it doesn't mean you can't live in a single family home. It just means that your next door neighbor can knock down his or her house and build a triplex, or in some places, a fourplex or even a sixplex. So it's it's a big, big change, a huge one. And, oh, and the government admits this will transform most of the residential neighborhoods in British Columbia. Government insists it'll be for the good, but I think a lot of people are going to be shocked at what's happening in their neighborhoods. And it's not going to take long for that to take effect, is it? Because we're talking no public hearings. Yeah. So they've, I mean, you're right, Simi, they've made a whole bunch of changes here. They've not only said, yeah, you got to get rid of this kind of single family exclusive zoning for single family residences and duplexes, but uh, we're also going to change the parking rules. Now, parking is one of the things that municipalities have used to block approval because, well, you got to provide parking spaces. The government's saying in some cases you don't have to provide any parking at all uh, if you're near a transit line. Uh, and public hearings. So this is an interesting one because, again, Simi, as you know, 
uh, you get a public hearing into one of these projects and all the neighbors show up. And of course, the people who might live in the new triplex, they don't know. They're not, they don't live in the neighborhood yet, so they don't show up for the public hearing. Right. And council goes, I don't need this kind of heat. I'm running for re-election next year and it doesn't happen. Well, what the government has done, and this is again huge, is they've said every municipality must update its municipal housing plan in line with the new guidelines. Once those that plan is in place and it must agree with the government's objectives, any project that comes forward gets approved. No public hearings. So there will be public hearings when the plan is being updated, but once the plan is written in stone, forget it. The, the, you're not going to get a public hearing. The forces of NIMBY are going to be defeated before they even get together, get into their cars and head for City Hall. Right. That makes sense, though, when you consider we go through the agony of, of developing these city plans, these neighborhood plans, and then watch as projects don't go through that actually fall under those plans. This is a shift in the balance of power, no yeah. question. You know, the, the housing minister had an interesting image, Ravi Callan said, he said, look, he, he picked Halloween night. So you remember you and I were talking about this, Simi, we're talking about That's whether right. or not there were any kids in our neighborhood night. Look, I live in a neighborhood that is the kind of neighborhood the minister was talking about. He said, lots of neighborhoods in BC, single family neighborhoods, <clears throat> aging population, and they're, the, the residents are going, gee, this place used to be full of kids on Halloween night. Well, of course, there's no families living in the neighborhood anymore. See, I live in a neighborhood that when I moved in, there was street hockey going on. We haven't seen a street hockey uh, game here in this century on our street because uh, people with children, young families can't afford our neighborhood yeah. for the most part. So, yes. Uh, you get the merits of this. It will transform. It's not going to be any fun if your next door neighbor is going ahead with a sixplex on his property or her property. So let's not minimize the impact. Uh, the big problem, Simi, with what happened yesterday that I see is it's very difficult to answer questions about how this will work in detail. Because when you asked those questions yesterday, you got told that will be in the government's policy manual, which we'll be handing out. But they didn't give us copies of the policy manual yesterday, which will have all the detail in it, because it isn't ready for public release yet. So you're in a municipality. There's 85 of them affected by this. Most of the municipalities in BC, mayor and council have been given until next June to rewrite their zoning laws, to accommodate the policy manual, and they don't have a copy of the policy hmm. manual. So this okay. is another one of those ones where yeah. the New Democrats, you know, they got to get ready for the next election. They got to get this stuff done. They got to get the legislation out the door. Huge numbers of unanswered questions about how it's going to work. Uh, we got the press conference dealing with our toxic drug crisis with the coroner, Lisa Lapointe. But Vaughn, what happened during this conference? Yeah, this is a very dramatic press conference. So Lisa LaPointe, the coroner, puts out a report from an expert panel, and these people were experts. And essentially the report says, look, we still haven't gotten on top of the problem of the death toll from unsafe supply. And what we need to do here in BC is expand access to the safe supply of drugs. And the way they wanted to do it, 
this was a recommendation, is start dispensing safe drugs without prescriptions. Uh, Lisa LaPointe lays this out. The head of the panel explains why, as, uh, you know, they know what they're doing. It's a powerful explanation. First question from the reporter is, what does the coroner's response to the letter that morning from the government, which has been given to reporters, saying, forget it, this is not going to happen? Flatly, out of hand, rejecting the call for access to safe supply drugs without a prescription, and LaPointe's reaction, it's right there on tape, reporters are watching, is, I haven't seen the letter. Oh. Like, this moment underscores the yawning gulf between expert panels and the coroner on the way to get on top of the safe supply the, the issue of overdose deaths in BC by expanding access to the safe supply and a political government that is facing increasing political heat from the public that has not been brought along on the expert arguments for going this way. The well, government were, I, I think they were brought yeah. along a little bit, Vaughn, and they, they and they were, but then all the other issues yeah. came up and it just got too much, got to be too much. That's a good way to put it. You know, all the parties in the legislature supported this. Absolutely, they did. This yeah. road initially. Yeah. But they also said this is an experiment. And what's been happening is the fallout. So you had the problem of open drug use in parks and recreation areas. You have the problem of... Uh, many, many news reports, Global has done a very good job on this one, uh, the news hour, uh, highlighting uh, the illicit trade in safe supply. Uh, you've got neighborhoods, uh, downtown especially, that are overrun with over, over drug use. And, uh, you know, the public is, I think, out there increasingly and elected politicians, mayors, councillors, some MLAs going to the government and saying, it's just not working. We're not going to stand for this illicit drug use, widespread, encouraged by the government, licensed by the government, paid for by the government. We're not putting up with this. And the government is going, hey, we're, this, this experiment is in serious trouble. Other jurisdictions, uh, Simi, that we're going to follow British Columbia's example and try the same thing and let us go first are now going, yeah. no way, we don't need the political heat. So I see, like, well, I can see that. I get that. And I just, yeah. advocates, I think, have not yet seen the fact yeah. that I think this government has gone as far as they are going to go on this issue. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, again, the, the NDP line on this when these problems first started surfacing and the opposition brought them to their attention, uh, the NDP line was, hey, you voted for this too. And the opposition said, we didn't vote for the results and the consequences. And you've got to deal with those. And now you've got the government backing away. I mean, LaPointe said she was disappointed. I, I understand her disappointment. I don't think anybody questions her motivation. And look, as she said, you know, she's in the front line. She's, she sees the death reports every day. And there are on average, six of them every day. And they aren't just the people that you have in your mind, uh, street people overdosing. It's across the population. We, we know all of that, Simi, intellectually, but it is we're, what we're seeing is the problem with the political heat 
and support for the initiatives on helping people get off drugs and making a safe supply supply initiative. Like the government is coming from a well-intentioned place on this too. They want this experiment to survive, but they are also saying if it keeps going this way with the public backlash, we may have to back off even further. So, you know, uh, the experts told us what they think, but they don't have to take the political heat. They're not in the front line of a government that's looking for re-election next year. And where the evidence is starting to pile up of things that have gone wrong, you know, the the BC United Eleanor Sturko Simi has made very, exactly. very good work yes. exposing um, what some of these agencies, these delivery agencies were buying their drugs illegally themselves and passing them around. And again, you know, yes, their intentions matter. LaPointe said, hey, if you're looking at a burning house you might just decide to smash the windows even though it's against the law. Look, I, I think we all get both sides of this argument. The problem is it's just if you can't bring the public along on this, this is going but to keep he, going backwards. It but, is not going to get where they hope to be. But here's also the thing, Vaughn. The public, I think, would come along on this if they thought it was working. Yeah, if if yeah. there were, if you could say, oh, look, the numbers have gone down. Oh, look, yeah. here's here's where it has made a difference. Here are the lives that we have saved. They're not showing us any of that. All they're That's saying true. is, trust us, it's going to get better. And the numbers are not getting better. That's true. You know, that is the other problem. Like you launch this great big experiment. Yes. And when it doesn't work out, you say, well, give it time, give it time, give We've it given time. given it time. Well, you know, I, I mean, as, as at an intellectual level, in the same way I think you understand the motivation for wanting to go this route, you understand this will take time. But if you're living in one of the neighborhoods under siege by the consequences of this policy, you know, the experts may say, oh, that's just anecdotal evidence. Look, well, still, what you in see. the political yeah. realm, anecdotes trump statistics from time to time. And when the consequences are right there staring in your face when you go out in your neighborhood, uh, this those anecdotes are, are more powerful than any number of academic studies. That is very true. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I've been following this story out of Quebec the last few weeks. Maybe you have too. It's a story that is having a huge impact in the post-secondary world. The government of Francois Legault has suddenly, very suddenly, I should say, decided that out-of-province students at Quebec's universities will have to pay pretty much double the tuition starting next year. So Canadian students at a Canadian university will pay twice what Quebec students will pay. Now, the Quebec government claims this will help safeguard the French language because they claim the extra money will go to French universities. But what will it do to those institutions like McGill or, or bishops that have so many students from across Canada, including many from right here in B.C.? And how can a province do this to another province? Well, Sebastien Lebel-Grenier is the principal and vice chancellor of Bishops University in Quebec and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. How much will this impact bishops? 
It stands to have really a catastrophic impact on our university, um, of course, financially, but most importantly, in terms of our identity as an institution. Now, for bishops, um, out-of-province students, uh, students that come basically from other Canadian provinces, account for about 30% of our student body, and they've always been an important part of our student body. Uh, bishops is a place where people come and and grow into a community. And they come from uh, Quebec, of course, but also from all over Canada. And we've got a lot of students coming in from all over the world uh, internationally. So this diversity is really core to the uh, experience we offer students. And we fear that um, Canadian students just won't be able to afford coming to bishops anymore. And that's going to fundamentally transform who we are. Have you had that reaction? I mean, this is recruiting season, right? For the next year for university, what kind of impact has that had? Well, it's having a devastating impact as we speak. Um, You know, a lot of our prospective students are reaching out to us and telling us that we're definitely their first choice, but they just won't be able to afford it. Now, uh, to make things very clear, uh, tuition right now is is that stands at about $9,000 for Canadian out-of-province students. And with the um, proposal, it would jump to 17000 Now, the vast majority of our students are undergraduate students, and the Canadian average for that category of students is 7500 So that means that uh, roughly the new tuition would be two and a half times as much as the national average for undergraduate students. And it would by far make Quebec the most expensive place to go and undertake um, undergraduate studies. The Quebec University system is so admired, bishops and McGill and, and so many other institutions. Is This means a huge change. Why would the government do this? What have you heard? Well, there's been different kinds of justifications. Uh, one of them has been that uh, in the government's um, mindset, the there are too many Anglophone students coming to Montreal. Um, now, of course, I, I think there's a wider and more uh, profound discussion to have about that. I, I, you know, I would disagree with that. I think it's um, it doesn't uh, really take into account the extreme um, contribution that these students make uh, to Montreal and, and Quebec generally. But certainly for bishops, it's absolutely impossible to comprehend because we're located in the city of Sherbrooke in the eastern townships, 140 kilometers away from Montreal. And our uh, local community in the Eastern Townships has always been about uh, collaboration between the Anglophone and Francophone communities. And the Francophone communities standing up to say, no way, not, uh, we'll, we'll uh, allow our institution to be threatened. Uh, this institution, Bishops, is really um, fundamental and essential to the history and the future um, of our region. So for us, it's extremely difficult to comprehend You know, from here in British Columbia, we have a generation of children who have gone to French immersion from kindergarten. It's a it's a huge option out here for people that is always jam packed. And they and they choose Quebec universities because then they have that option of of speaking French. Like, does the government not understand that that people go there to actually immerse themselves in that? You're absolutely right. And that's what makes this uh, so difficult to understand that our experience is that. 
a lot of the students that do come to bishops come because they want to know more about Quebec society. They want to have an experience in a different, uh, diverse province. And a lot of them come because uh, they want to get uh, more fluent in French uh, because they want that experience where they can be in a safe place for immersion. They go to an English language institution in a francophone region so that they can be exposed to the French language, but also uh, make it in a setting that will allow them to perform and and achieve their academic goals. So um, obviously the Quebec government uh, does not appreciate that reality. Any movement from the government on this, since I know there have been uh, lots of concerns being raised about it? Yes, well, we're having um, discussions with the government. Uh, They've shown, demonstrated some uh, opening, but uh, still it is quite unclear what the outcome will be. So we've been having discussions, but there's no concrete proposals that have been discussed. And we're fearful that as time progresses, this is having a really uh, important impact on our capacity to recruit students for next year. So we're we're already seeing damage from this announcement. Can bishops survive if that decision isn't changed? Well, if the uh, announced measures are implemented as they have been announced, uh, we really fear for the future of bishops. It is unclear whether we can survive. Now, that being said, the government has publicly stated that uh, they understand the specific impact on bishops and how the uh, the impact stands to be catastrophic. Uh, And they have publicly stated that they will not let bishops close down. So we're still waiting to hear from, from them what measures they would propose. We're in discussions with them. We have proposed some uh, measures that would uh, basically allow them to, to, um, respond to these specific circumstances, but we've yet to see concrete proposals. Right. It's it's hard, though. Like, if a parent, if I were a parent advising my child as I was, you know, five, six years ago, I'd probably tell them to avoid that kind of confusion, wouldn't I? Well, that's our fear, right? Uh, and I would understand as well. I'm a parent of, uh, of two boys that are uh, university age, and certainly I would not want to um, suffer the same kind of uncertainty. It's it's really quite unfortunate because all of this is quite unnecessary. The measure was um, improvised, was not researched properly. We were never consulted. Had that been done, I think we wouldn't be here. Well, Sebastian, thank you so much for your time today. And listen, best of luck in trying to get this overturned. Thank you, and thank you for your support. This is Mornings with Simi. The part of what we're trying to do with Shaping BC's environmental future in this series is to show you all of the different ways that scientists and researchers and innovators are, are trying to tackle uh, the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, this urgent need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere in order to improve the situation. And when I say there's a lot of innovative work being done, that is no exaggeration. I want you to meet our next guest who is doing something incredibly innovative. It's Dr. Kate Moran, who's President and CEO of Ocean Networks at Canada. Dr. Moran, thank you for for being with us. Oh, happy to. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'd love to hear about some of these projects you're working on. For one, what is the Solid Carbon Project? Oh, Solid Carbon is it's very exciting. Um, it, it actually provides us hope. It's a, it's a group of many scientists and technologists and engineers that I've been leading now for several years. And we've just completed, we're just at the, the, the far end of a feasibility study. And the project really is, the goal is to combine ocean technology, 
um, offshore with direct air capture of CO2, take that CO2, pump it through the water column, and then inject it into the subsea floor into a rock type called basalt. And the reason we want to do that is because of the fact that we know from researchers and uh, actually now in industrialists in Iceland that when you, when you inject CO2 into basalt, this type of rock, it turns into rock itself in a short amount of time in, in Iceland in two years. But the really important aspect of it is that most of the basalt is in the ocean, over 90%. And we have some of the best basalt off our coast. And so we're really interested in advancing this new technology to really pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and keep the planet habitable for humans and rich biodiversity. And are you talking about turning it into rock? Yes, absolutely. It becomes the most durable solution uh, for other kinds of sequestration. That's when when uh, you take CO2 and pump it into underground geological formations, most of those formations, the CO2 remains gas. So it has the potential to leak in the long term. In our solution that we've been, we've been studying for the past several years, it would become the most durable solution for CO2 by turning it into rock because it, it reacts with the, with the basalt itself. Okay, so how far away from you are prog- on progressing on this? We're following the model that they did in Iceland, where once the Icelandic technologists demonstrated that it worked, they pumped the CO2 into basalt, they showcased the fact that it, it, it turned into rock in a short amount of time, that then led to great investment. And now there's a company that's actually moving forward with this project in Iceland called CarbFix. They're quite successful, but it's really important that we take that technology to the offshore because that's where most of the basalt is. And so our next step is to, we're seeking funding to actually do a demonstration off our coast. And we think once we do that and demonstrate the efficacy uh, of this solution that we'll be seeing investment into moving this into essentially a new industry. And so that's one of the reasons that we want to uh, conduct this demonstration to attract that um, that uh, investment to move forward in this way. Right. That's so interesting. But that's not the only thing you're doing either. Right. Like you're also doing a kind of an ocean based carbon dioxide removal. What is that all about? Yes. Okay. So for for those who who don't know, um, most of the CO2 that has been pumped into the atmosphere has been absorbed by the ocean. Most of the carbon on the planet actually resides in the ocean. And that's because there's these natural processes in the ocean that take CO2 out of the atmosphere. There's actually six different types of technologies. Uh, I had the honor of being part of a U.S. National Academy study that actually... um, we looked at all the type of research needed to advance these solutions. There are early stages of research, but what we are doing at Ocean Networks Canada, because we operate real-time observation systems, we can actually take these concepts and move them from the laboratory or models and test them in the ocean, in a real ocean environment. And we just started doing that with a company called Running Tide. We installed an experiment um, fairly deep, about a little over a kilometer in the water. And that experiment is assessing the efficacy of actually moving biomass, both 
marine and terrestrial biomass that's carbon rich and place right. it in deep in the ocean. So that experiment is underway right now. And we're working on one with another company to look at the efficacy of what's called enhanced ocean alkalinity. You know, so these are nat- natural processes that we want to enhance. And we want to see, first of all, if they, if they have any negative impacts before a decision made is made to move them forward. That is fascinating. I can't wait to have you back to find out what it is that you find out with your experiments. Dr. Moran, thank you for your time. Oh, happy call anytime. Oh, we will do that. That is Dr. Kate Moran, President and CEO of Ocean Networks Canada. This is Mornings with Simi. I want to talk about Movember because it's Movember, right? Uh, yesterday, November yes. 1st, today, November 2nd. So you'll probably be seeing a lot of guys clean shaven and uh, starting to grow the mustache as as the month of Movember uh, carries on. And I got in touch with Mitch Hermanson. He's the head of Movember Canada. Just to sort of like, t- you know, find out what Movember is doing. They add new things every year and they're like, you know, refocusing and stuff. And you know, as a guy and a guy with mental health issues and stuff, it's I think it's such a wonderful wonderful thing when people embrace mental health for men because like none of my friends go to therapy and I think they all should. So I talked with Mitch and I asked him like, you know, this must feel great. Like how long have you guys been doing Movember now? This is actually the 20th year worldwide, um, but 17th year in Canada. And so we're excited to kick off the hairy month and enjoy a really good month around having these awesome conversations around men's health, encouraging Canadians across the country to get on board, head to Movember.com. Sign up and let's have some fun and raise money for a good cause this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we say the word Movember, I think a lot of people right away think about mustaches because, you know, that's what we do. That's what we are known for. Men clean shave and grow a mustache throughout the month of November and end up looking pretty dapper, if I do say so myself, by the end of the month. But for people who might not be aware, like what is the cause behind this and what are we raising money for and raising awareness for? Totally. Uh, we love a good mustache and whether it's Tom Selleck or, you know, maybe young Justin Bieber, they're all very important. They all start conversations to save lives. And it's really around men's health. And the reality is men's health isn't doing the greatest. Uh, men will die in Canada on, on average about four years younger than women, largely for preventable reasons. A lot of it comes down to the attitudes men take towards their health. They're slow to go to the doctor. They're slow to take action for their health. You know, when it comes to our mental health, a lot of men, instead of reaching out for help, will isolate themselves. And in Canada, actually, sadly, 75% of suicides in this country are by men. And so this month is really all about growing these mustaches to start these important conversations around men's health, making men know it's okay to take action for their health, whether it's physical or mental, making sure they go to the doctors when they need to, um, and ultimately making men know it's okay to take action for their health. Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing. I do agree with you about that, that, you know, we need to get men uh, to a better place with things like mental health and, and our physical health. You know, it's a hard thing. And anything that just sort of gets that conversation going. I know in the past that I have, when I've rocked the mustache, people have sort of said, oh, it's Movember. What do you do? And I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. I have therapy this week and I'm talking to my doctor and all of that type of stuff because we want to just kind of normalize this like we're normalizing mustaches, which is so fun. Um, but there's some other things that are happening, like people can uh, do physical challenges and host events and stuff, right? Because not everybody's going to grow a mustache, but there are other ways to participate. Tell me about that. Yeah. So if anyone's interested in learning more, get involved, I recommend heading to Movember.com. It's a great place to learn more about how to get involved. And so you can do it, you know, with your friends and maybe your workplace by yourself. You can grow a mustache. That's obviously the most 
famous way to get involved with Movember. But over the years, we wanted to be a bit more inclusive. So there's three other ways, actually. So you can take our 60-kilometer move challenge. We're basically during the month. Uh, you walk around 60 kilometers. Uh, the 60 number actually represents the number of men we lose to, lose to suicide uh, every hour globally. So that's one mm. per minute. So you can do that. You can host an event. So get creative. Uh, maybe it's a chili cook-off. Maybe it's a polar bear dip. Maybe it's you know, just climbing grass mat with some friends, but do it in support of men's health. And the last way is you can get creative. It's called mow your own way and you can just do whatever you want. For example, last year when I hit my fundraising goal, I dyed my hair blonde. Uh, I actually don't know if I'd recommend that. Turns out it takes four months to grow out. <laughs> uh, so I had some frosted tips, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for about two months. No, that's great. Yeah, You're combining a- like the eighties mustache and the early nineties frosted tips is good luck. <laughs> Yeah, it might catch fire. It might not. I'm okay. not sure. We'll see. How does it feel to have seen this thing, you know, really take on life over over the years? You know, that it's it's totally become this um, this automatic thing that you see somebody with a mustache in November. And, I mean, I love the people who are rocking it year-round as well. But as soon as you see somebody in November with a mustache, right away you know that that's what they're doing. So this thing has become a part of our culture. How does that feel to see that, you know, it, it's working essentially? Yeah, I think it's pretty powerful. You know, when the guys started it 20 years ago back in Melbourne, Australia, there wasn't anything being done for men's health. And they were very inspired by the pink ribbon. You can think about everything that's done for women's health and breast cancer but there really wasn't anything for men's health. And so Movember, it's kind of become, you know, the mustache is kind of our hairy ribbon, you could say. And it's really empowered and started all these amazing conversations and raised funds. Like in Canada, uh, over the past 13 years, we've raised and invested, thanks to Movember supporters, over $107 million in the prostate cancer research, which makes Movember the number two supporter of that cause, second only to the federal government which is pretty wild when you think about it. It's all from these mustaches and people getting behind the cause. And because of that, you know, five years from now, we'll have grandfathers and fathers alive that never would have been if it wasn't thanks to all these people and Canadians supporting this cause. And so I think that's a pretty powerful thing. And beyond the programs that are funded, it's those those conversations that can really save a life. We always say, you know, you can save a life before you even raise a single dollar for November just by having a conversation. You know, this month, phone up your dad and be like, hey, have you had your prostate cancer? Have you ever had your prostate checked? Have you talked to your doctor about it? Because, you know, a lot of guys, as we know, they have a little delay going to the doctor or maybe skip their annual ke- ch- checkup just because they're busy. But that conversation could result in their dad going to the doctors, finding prostate cancer early, and boom, you just save your life just by having that conversation. So I think that's really the power of Movember is, yes, we raised a lot of money and it does a lot of good, but these conversations can literally save lives and every single mustache this month we'll be starting those conversations. That's Mitch Hermanson. He's the president of Movember Canada. So a great cause and also a cool thing because the mustache is like, it's a good luck. I know people are against It's a good luck. <laughs> no, it depends on who it is, Scott. Let's be honest. It's not a good look okay. for every single person. It is a good look for some people. Yeah. And I think that if people like doing it, that they should do it. And the people sure. that it's a good look on, they should do it. And sure. we should do it because we should have conversations about men's health. At that Absolutely. Agree with that 110%. But the mustache, I love that for some people, Movember, when they do it, it really, you can Mm -hmm. tell, wow, is that a Movember thing that you're doing there? Because maybe that's a new look for them. Right. But I salute the... The 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 the, the cause. effort. Yeah, the cause. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I do. Thank you for that. You got Scott. it. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, this week we've heard again about problems with repeat offenders and the impact it's having on our streets and our communities. A coalition of businesses and organizations are demanding the provincial government do more to improve public safety. They want to see something done to curb the shoplifting and the vandalism they say they're plagued with. Meanwhile, that bail reform bill that BC has pushed hard for with the federal government is slowly being dealt with in the Senate, and senators have expressed concern over tougher bail restrictions. That is just one of the issues that we are going to talk about with Attorney General Nikki Sharma, along with an update on the Intimate Images Protection Act. Attorney General Nikki Sharma joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Let's start with the Intimate Images Protection Act. Now, that comes into force here in early 2024, but we're already seeing some kind of push, like there's more, there's more kind of organizations pushing back against us because we saw this case down in in Oregon as well, didn't we? Yeah, the case in Oregon was uh, repulsive, atrocious, and my heart goes out to those young girls that were taken advantage of by this 37-year-old man in the States. It's unfortunately just uh, one example of something that we know is happening to a lot of young people. They're getting taken advantage of through these extortion and being forced to do things that um, they they should never be forced to do. Right, and, and are, it's just definitely a serious issue. And these were three youths here in BC, but this was an American person. Will the act help in cases like this? Yeah, the act is, is set up. We're, we're transforming the justice system to respond to this type of issue. So if young people come forward and they want, to, they want their image taken down quickly or they want to go after a person that is threatening them in this way, they can seek an online, it's an online platform that will be launched in January. They can seek an order from our courts to get them down and then all these things kick in for them to be able to go after that person or the platform to take those images down. It, it's meant to complement the, the criminal justice system because clearly, like in the case in Oregon, criminal charges were very warranted in that this situation. Right, and that was a case that originated here. Like that was Comox Valley RCMP that first received the report on that, right? That's right, and and it just is. A, I think we all we have to send the message to all parents and all young people that don't be taken advantage of this way and that it's not your fault and don't suffer in silence to come forward because there's people to help you. I know one of the young people spoke to a counselor at school and I think it's just so important that we all understand that um, children are facing, young people are facing this type of thing online and we need to be there to support them. Okay, and when does that act come into effect? Um, we are going to be launching in January, um, so a few months from now. Right. Okay. So I'm sure we'll be talking to you again because it's important to get the word out. Um, in the meantime, can we also talk about what we saw this week? We've got this coalition of businesses and organizations who are saying the provincial government needs to do more on the issue of public safety. Like, what did you think about that? Uh, well, yeah, public safety is very important. I hear from British Columbians like across. Uh, the province, and in fact, the country when I travel, that there's a, a rise in, in street disorder and crime, and it's concerning. And that's why when I became attorney general, it's been my top priority to do a whole range of things and work with my colleagues to do so. And one of them is bail reform. Um, I've been advocating the federal government to make sure that we have better tools when it comes to repeat violent offenders to keep them detained instead of causing harm to communities. And I, I was the only minister in the country, in fact, to speak at the Senate committee to say um, we want this type of reform to happen quickly. Um, and we're hopeful that it will in the next little while, but we'll keep at it. But it's not the only thing we're doing. We're investing in frontline resources on the ground to help um, to help make a difference. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 
I'm always happy, along with everybody in government, to work with people that are concerned about this, that may have ideas, and and we uh, we need to address this problem for sure. Were you concerned about some of the questions that you got from the senators in regards to this this bill? They didn't they didn't seem to like some of the provisions, particularly about the reverse onus situation. Um, yeah, I welcomed questions because it helped, gave me a chance to explain what our perspective is on this. We think that uh, the bill strikes the right balance is what we're saying. Everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But in certain circumstances where somebody has showed repeated violence, intimate partner violence, use of weapons has caused harm to communities, then the onus should shift to say, well, this person should be held unless there's a good reason for them to be released. And we think that that balance is the right balance and it helps improve, it would help to improve community safety in the end. Are you concerned about potential amendments that the Senate might suggest for the House of Commons? Um, I'm concerned about one in particular um, that's about intimate partner violence. Uh, I've been advocating for um, that. We know that when when there is intimate partner violence and past intimate partner violence, it can be the most dangerous time for a woman fleeing because there's a threat of heightened violence. So if somebody's before a court for intimate partner violence, and they've done it in the past, we believe that the onus should shift there too. So they should be held unless there's a good reason to release them. And I I know that there's questions in the Senate whether or not that will be removed from the bill. And it's something that I'll be definitely advocating for. Right. So are you concerned then? Are are you still hopeful that this bill is going to make it through and soon? Um, I'm hopeful and we'll, we'll keep at it. I mean, I, like I said, I spoke at the Senate when I had a chance, we've been speaking to senators. I've been in touch with Mr. Varani about that. I've received assurances that it's going to move quickly, but I'm really hopeful that it will. And we'll keep at it in the meantime. Is it, has it been a bit frustrating though? Um, yeah, that, it was frustrating. I thought when we led the charge last year, when they said that they would move it last spring and it would be passed last spring, we had the delay to come to this fall. So that definitely has been um, frustrating, that delay. Um, we know that people are asking for these types of reforms and that it's needed on the ground. Um, but we, we haven't stopped in terms of our own investments and the things that we have in our control to do. Um, so we've invested in repeat offenders, uh, task force, which 12 hubs across this province that are right now Crown Council, police officers, probation officers that are fully resourced to address the most violent offenders in our system to make sure that we're focusing on them and making sure communities are safe. So we're still doing stuff while we're waiting for this bail reform, but we know that that's an important piece of it. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of British Columbia, talking about a couple of different areas involving British Columbians, particularly the bail reform issue. This is something that BC has pushed hard for. Uh, Premier David Eby has raised it in Ottawa multiple times. Attorney General Nikki Sharma has gone to Ottawa uh, to push for this. She answered questions from senators because that is where the bill is right now in front of the Senate and is hoping that they were convinced, you know, to, to make those changes that BC feels are absolutely necessary to help improve the public safety issue. So it is under Senate review right now, Bill C-48, and some senators, as you heard, have been expressing concerns about uh, the, the bail reform issue, who that might disproportionately affect. But BC feels like they have put safeguards in place on this, but they said something needs to be done. So the federal government, the liberal government, the Trudeau government says they support this, but we'll see what happens, still waiting for it to get through these final last few hurdles before it becomes law. And of course, we will be keeping track of that. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, big news from the province about housing that we're going to talk about now. Legislation is being tabled that will require municipalities to facilitate the construction of townhomes, multiplexes, laneway houses. I mean, essentially multiple forms of housing, more of it everywhere. And, oh, phasing out public hearings if it's already part of the city's existing city plan for development. All very interesting, right? So what do the municipalities need to know? What rules will they have to adhere to? Let's get into the details of this. Revy Kalon joins us now, BC's Minister of Housing. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Sydney. Thanks so much for having me. So this sounds like a very big deal. What do you think this will do? What kind of a difference do you think this will make? Well, I believe this will uh, unlock the homes that we desperately need in our communities. Uh, I've said multiple times, you know, people are really struggling to find housing. You hear it on your show all the time. I hear it since I've become the Minister of Housing all the time. We've got young people young families considering leaving the province because they can't find a place uh, that that works for their uh, income range. We've got seniors who are like coming up to me saying, hey, my kids are moving to another area and I'm going to have to pack up and leave. And so, you know, what we want to do is we want to have housing. We want vibrant, healthy communities, but we want housing options available in all communities. And I believe that the legislation that we put forward yesterday is a major step in that direction. Okay, so why do you think this is needed then? Like were municipalities not doing enough on their own? Well, uh, first off, we have every community kind of trying to do different things at, at this, uh, different times. And what was important for us was to say, here's the new minimum across the province. And so part of the legislation, we've said uh, lots that are uh, 3,000 square feet or smaller can now have three units as of right. Uh, lots that are bigger than 3,000 square feet can have four units. And, and bus stops that have frequent uh, um, access to uh, transit uh, near them, they can go up to six units. And I think that's an important step and to say this is going to be everywhere within urban containment boundary areas. So we want to see the housing already where the plans are for housing to go and not encourage sprawl. That's an important piece, I think, and certainly what we've seen in other jurisdictions, uh, in, let's say, for example, in Ontario, where every city is trying to figure out how to do this individually. We believe that housing is a responsibility of everyone in this province. Every community has a responsibility. And so that's why we're going province-wide. Let's talk about the phasing out of the public hearings then, because obviously that's a huge issue. Lots of communities see people who oppose these things and show up for these public hearings. Did you feel that was an impediment to the process? Well, certainly we wanted to create more certainty. Uh, and, you know, one of the most frustrating things that uh, I certainly have faced in this uh, in this role is having to relitigate decisions when they've already been made. I mean, how are we going to move forward and get the housing that we need built if we're constantly looking at decisions we've already made and trying to figure out if they were the right ones? So what, we're, what we've done with the legislation is done a couple things. One, we've said to communities, housing needs reports must be done and they must be done in the same format from every community because every community has been doing housing needs reports, but quite frankly, some have been picking and choosing things that they want to highlight. So now we've got a standard format. We're saying to local governments, you must update your community plans and your zoning every five years. So go engage with the community, talk to them about how much housing the community needs, come up with a plan to ensure that everyone believes uh, a plan that everyone can agree on. Uh, And once that plan is in place, let's get going. Let's start building housing uh, that we need in our communities. And so it's not about saying people shouldn't have a say. It's, It's actually saying, have your say in the beginning. 
make a plan, and when we have the plan, let's work the plan so we can get housing built. Okay, so what are these? What are the new rules that municipalities will have to adhere to? Like, where is the booklet? Where is the guidance for them on that? So the site standards uh, will come after the legislation is passed. Uh, we've said the square footage, but part of that, what we've already indicated, is we would like to see because if we just said uh, three units, four units as of right. I mean, everybody will make their own rules, and we know that the challenge in getting this type of housing built is often in, in heights and setbacks and parking. So what we said is we are going to put site standards in place, uh, and those site standards will be made public this fall, uh, not only for the public to see, but also for those communities to go away and do their planning. And uh, communities have till the end of June next year to have the bylaws updated according to our site standards. Uh, and if for some reason uh, they can't or they don't want to, uh, by default, our site standards will become the uh, the rules within those communities until such time that they update their rules. Okay, so why are the details then coming after the legislation is passed? Shouldn't this be something available so that we can all see it when the legislation is being discussed? Well, regulations with all legislation comes after the legislation is passed. Uh, I haven't heard of regulations being made public prior to legislation being passed. So this is just the normal process of how legislation gets passed in the legislature. We have the framework of what needs to happen. That is what's being debated over the next couple of weeks. And then the regulations come after that. Right. But site standards like the footprint, uh, setbacks, all of that, that, those are a lot of details that I think a, a lot of communities feel quite passionately about. Oh, no, for sure. And, and they're important pieces of the entire pie. That's why we've already said the type of square footage of the lots that will have to be considered for three units, four units. We've already said that hey, if you were building housing somewhere uh, where there's no transit access, you know, you're going to need a parking spot per unit that you build. Uh, and as you get closer to transit opportunities, that uh, amount will decrease. So all those kind of um, details that local governments will have to consider depending on their situation is going to be important. Again, that's coming this fall. Okay, so let me ask you a question about just, I'll use Vancouver as an example here, because we're seeing a lot of duplexes being built in Vancouver right now because of the rules that changed. But then you can't have a laneway house, right, if you build a duplex. So what you're saying with these new rules is you can have a duplex and a laneway house? What we're saying, well, Vancouver, first off, is included in the, uh, into the three and four and six units. But uh, it's important to note that the uh, official community plan rules of waiving hearings is, does not, uh, is not applicable to Vancouver because they have a Vancouver charter and it's, it's completely different than uh, you know, all other communities. But yes, what we're saying is that the new rules we've put in place, it's my expectation that this will be the minimum, whether it's Vancouver, Burnaby, Victoria, or Kelowna. Uh, all communities will use this as, a, as their new Baseline. Okay, so and also, if somebody wants to still build a single-family home, they can do that. Of course, yeah, no, I've said that multiple times. If if a person wants a single-family home and they can afford it, uh, then they certainly can. And uh, and and those how that type of housing will be still available for people. But what we're saying with this legislation is that when a single-family home comes down and only a single-family home can be built, that is just not viable for people. Too many people just cannot afford that type of uh, housing. We need to be able to have more housing options available for people. And so this is enabling uh, a different type of housing that is more accessible to, to young families, to seniors, to, uh, to all people within the province. How soon do you think this could have an impact? Like, How quickly do you think this could make a difference? 
Well, we believe that changes to the public hearings will have an impact uh, right away. Uh, and of course, communities have to the end of June next year to update their bylaws. But the economic analysis that we have, that we had done by independent organizations, uh, they believe that we will see a net increase of 130,000 units over the next 10 years. And so that's significant. That's on top of the housing starts that we already have. Uh, and so, you know, for us, uh, what we said through our Homes for People strategy was we need to unlock more housing. We need to uh, help streamline the process. So not only can we unlock the housing, but so that we can get to decisions, uh, get to yes in a much quicker way. And, and that's what we believe we've done with yesterday's legislation. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me, Simi. You too. That's Ravi Kailan, BC's Minister of Housing, explaining in more detail the legislation uh, proposed yesterday, This dealing with uh, definitely expanding density all over the province, but essentially saying, listen, we are going to promote the construction of small-scale multi-unit housing in BC, and here's how it's going to get done. And that means they will allow a minimum a minimum of one secondary suite or laneway house in all single family or duplex residential zones out there. It depends on the size of your lot here too. If you are under 3,000 square feet for your lot, that means that they can have up to three units. If you're bigger than 3,000 square feet, you can have four to six units there. Uh, a, a minimum of six units in some areas that are zoned for larger properties, such as near frequent transit stops. I mean, there's a lot to this. Clearly, municipalities will have to digest this, figure this out, because if they don't figure out their city plans for what they're going to allow, then the province's rules will be the default setting, essentially. So this is going to be a big change for quite a few communities out there. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. It'll be interesting to see how quickly this will start to filter down out there.